Today we'll be in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and we get to one of my favorite portions of scripture, the therefore. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson that said, whenever you get to a therefore, back up and remember what the therefore is there for, but he said it in a really cool accent that I probably can't do right now. So in Romans, apart from the little bit of chapter 1, where Paul gives an introduction and his desire to visit Rome, from chapter 1 through 3, it's basically laying out that the Greek is without excuse because they, they deny that they have any knowledge of the law. And then the Jew feels like, well... We're in because we just possess knowledge of the law. And Paul goes on to explain to both of them that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have failed miserably. Chapter 4, we have this mini faith hall of fame where he uses Abraham as an example of what salvation by faith looks like said that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Not that Abraham did anything else but believe. He believed the promise of God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he's saying not even, you can't, you can't even go to Abraham as your example of, of possession of the law because I know that's what you want to do because he is the father of the Jews and I know that's what you're going to do. So he, he squashes that right off the bat. Now, in, in chapter 5, we're going to see the, the fruit of justification by faith alone. And I know a lot of you will relate, or most of you should, is a crippling feeling of, of assurance, or lack of assurance in salvation, I should say. I've had many, many of you talk to me about their assurance or, or how you feel like, how could God love me if I keep failing in this way or that way? And I've asked myself the same thing. And this idea of eternal security has been debated throughout most of church history. It's nothing new. We, we see it all the time. I, I worked with a, a gentleman who was a free will Baptist pastor and we got on the subject of the millennial reign, and he said, I hope I don't lose my salvation during the millennial reign. And I, was, I guess Josh would have been like, there's not going to be one. <laughs> but I just said, well, it's, it's not eternal or everlasting life if you can lose it in the millennial reign or in this, in this life. And he paused for a minute. And he said, you're right. I don't think he's still free will Baptist. I haven't talked to him in a few years, but I think he was moving toward uh, a four-point Calvinist, as some like to call it. But if you think of John 3.16, it doesn't say whoever believes will inherit temporary life with the possibility of everlasting life based on whatever feelings you think you have or whatever mood that God happens to be in that day. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And this idea is the greatest tool of the enemy 
and it is often promoted by the church. I, you see it all the time. It's either people want to scare their congregation to death, or they are just ignorant. But being brokenhearted over sin is a healthy thing. But you don't have to live there. There's grace upon grace upon grace. We've all wrestled with it, I'm sure. The fact is there's nothing, you, you people with children, can anything separate you from your love for your child? How much more is the God who saves? How much more does he love you? And how could you think that you could be separated from the love of your father? We're not good enough to earn salvation. We're not good enough to keep it. It's all a work of God from beginning to end. And I was supposed to do last Sunday, and then um, some things came up, and I was unable to. And then after, after realizing that I was doing this Sunday, I was like, ah, oh, I, I get to the good news. We got all this, you're failing, you're failing, you fall short. Abraham even did, but he had faith, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then I get to present a glimpse into the gospel here in Romans. So if you're able, I would ask that you please stand at this time as we give honor to God's word. This is the infallible word of the living God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given us. O merciful Father, Lord, I ask that you would illumine our hearts to this passage. Lord, I ask that you give me words to speak. I ask that you forgive me of all my failures as I stand before your people to utter just one of your words. Lord, use me in spite of me. Have your way with us today. Let us feed on your word, this bread of life. We love you. We praise your holy name. And all of God's children said, Amen. So therefore, having been justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So on this basis, or therefore, on the, the basis of justification by faith, we have a peace. As we learned in chapters 1 through 4, we tend to think of a peace as, as a human thing. Like, I've made peace with God, or I've made peace with this individual who we were, we were arguing with. And it's kind of a human, human standpoint. Some would say, I've made peace with God. I've made peace with my maker. I'm okay. The reality is that God made peace, the peace. He made the peace with us, not us making peace with God. Peace is a product of justification. Since by faith alone we are justified, God has made peace. We are no longer his enemy. He justifies us in his sight. 
based on the atoning work of Christ. Then he adopts us as his own. He says, you're mine. You've been justified. Justice has been served. You're now mine. It would be hard to adopt someone you hate. I don't know what that was. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with, with his wounds, we are healed. The peace of God is a work of the triune God from beginning to end. He made peace with us when we were incapable and completely unwilling. Enemies of God. The beginning of the gospel is that you hate God. There is only enmity between you. And vice versa. Contrary to popular belief, God hates sinners. Christ is the only way of reconciliation and peace. There's, there's no other. There can't be another. When a person trusts in this finished work of Christ, who satisfied the wrath of God, it is, it is that time, at that time this peace with God is, is accomplished. We, we are able to be at peace. We didn't make it. Christ did. We're not only at peace with God, but Christ himself is our peace, Ephesians tells us. He's the object of our peace. This is the basis for assurance here. If we were not at peace, we couldn't be sure of any kind of salvation. We, we, would, we would still have that inner struggle. I did this. Surely God doesn't love me. I keep doing that. Surely... God's going to cut me off. But this justification by faith brings peace. The feeling of peace is by God, through God, through Christ. And this peace is applied by the Holy Spirit. I woke up at 1 o'clock this morning, nervous as I could be. Not particularly about this, and but it, it it was on my mind, and I was laying there and I was praying, and I thought I'm 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 speaking in front of all these people. I don't want to mess up, and then it and it was like, well, it's not about you messing up anything. It's about me. And I remember the words of my dear brother Josh. He's like, you're just telling your family about your father. And then this peace came over me. My nerves calmed down, and I just got up and started reading. I started studying. This feeling of peace overcame me. This peace that I could only know because of Christ and the Holy Spirit that indwells me, the same that indwells you. Having this peace with God frees us from focusing on ourselves, right? Because if we focus on ourselves, all we're going to see is where we fail continuously. We focus on the one that brought peace, the one that brought salvation, the one that justified us, Christ. I'm reminded of when Peter stepped out of the boat. He's looking at Christ. 
And then he's like, hey, I'm walking on water too. He looks down at his feet, and what does he do? He sinks. What does Christ do? He reaches down and picks him right back up. His focus shift, shifted. Peace should, should strengthen our security. And our security then allows us to be prepared for service. It empowers us for service. I've told numerous Christians that, that faced life-threatening illness. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, some of them have gone on. And I tell them, you've won. You've already won the race. You just got to finish. That's it. Same with any of us. That should bring us peace. You've already won. No matter what you think you did wrong or how much you did wrong, if you're a child of God, you just got to finish. Keep walking. Don't live there. Don't live in the past. It's there. That's the best place to leave it. Peace is established when a person places this trust in Christ. It's not subjective. It's, it's, a, it's, not, a, it's not based on a feeling, but an objective declara- declaration of God. The object of our faith is Christ. He's also the object of our peace, as I said. He alone brings us peace between God and man. He is the peacemaker. In John 19.30, Christ declared it is finished as, as him fully and completely from beginning to end. Nothing left to do. We still try, don't we? Still, we still want to have a hand in it sometimes. only hand you had and it was the sin that made it necessary we are presently and eternally at peace with God through Christ in Isaiah 32 verses 15 to 18 it says until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest then justice will dwell in the wilderness and the righteous will remain in the fruitful field the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet places the fruit of righteousness is peace. We're justified by faith. We're seen as righteous. Peace is the product or the fruit of righteousness. All unbelievers are enemies of God, as I mentioned. Psalm 5 5 says, You hate those who work iniquity. There's that saying that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And to an extent, that's true. He loves the sinners that he redeems. And I had a co-worker mention that God is love. God does not hate. There's no, he's not capable of hating. And I said, well, what about Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? The response was, I never thought of that. So we have this Americanized, 
is a watered-down gospel, Jesus loves you, or Jesus wants a relationship with you, this week Jesus begging you, please come to me. Please come. You're selling them a weak God. Christ did it all. He's not begging you to come. He didn't, he didn't beg the disciples when they were, they were fishing. He's like, hey, you come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. They didn't, they didn't go home and pack bags and tell anyone goodbye. They just got up and followed, right? It's that Jesus that we have. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. The gospel alone brings peace with God. Works of the law or an exercise in futility, you can't do it. The law brings a curse, Galatians 3 tells us. The law convicts either unto repentance or damnation. And I, I really... This is an opinion, but I feel most pastors are, are really heavy on the law and light on grace. I love Paul Washer, but I think he's really heavy on law and light on grace sometimes. If I ever get, you know, feeling too good about myself, I turn on Paul Washer because I know I will be humbled very quickly. And I do. I love Paul Washer. He's, he's a great pastor. Grace is, is a mountain that the law could never think about climbing or traversing. We don't sing amazing law, how sweet the sound. We sing amazing grace. Grace is the gospel in action by which a just God pours out his wrath on his son for a bunch of lawbreakers. And then he makes peace with them, for them. This peace comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot boast that we made peace with God ever. I, I must say that the law is not done away with. We cannot understand grace apart from the law. We can't understand how far God has reached down to redeem us. The law becomes a delight for us after salvation. We, we understand that that's what pleases God, and we delight in those things to do them. The law is not discounted. It has its place. But it's not of works, remember? Lest any man should boast, I can't go one Sunday without quoting Ephesians 2. It's Christ plus nothing. Through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Ephesians 2, speaking of, verses 17 and 18 says, And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who were near. For through him we have both, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Through Christ, we have access to this grace via faith. Grace. The Greek word here for access is prosiage. 
It's only used three times in the New Testament. It's here in Romans, Ephesians 2.18, and Ephesians 3.12. It's not a a fearful access. It's it's not that we have to kind of like, Lord, it's me. I need to make my supplications known to you. It's not that kind of access. Let's look at Hebrews. Chapter 4. Verses 14 to 16. Seeing that, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need. We may come boldly into the presence of God. Just like your little three-year-old can come crashing into your room and say, Dad, I need this. It's probably like a Pokemon card or something. Christ, our high priest, can sympathize with our temptations. He tore down that wall of separation. This is the significance of the veil being torn from top to bottom. The temple, this middle wall in the temple was made void. The, the, the temple itself was made void. The spirit of, of God resides in his children now. We are the temples. For Josh, <laughs> we're the third temple, which I agree. Uh, there's not going to be a third temple built with bricks and stuff. We're it. At the moment of salvation, grace is being continually applied. This grace in which we stand is staying me as a term of permanence, immovable grace. Faith is necessary for this salvation, but grace sustains it, keeps it moving. It's grace that we have the power to, that, that has the power to save, and it keeps us saved continually. Grace is free, it's not earned, it's not kept via works. This access is based on the peace with God through Christ. We can approach this throne of grace because of Christ, because of what he took on your behalf. You can come boldly into the throne of grace. So now we rejoice in this access of grace by faith. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Justification by faith brings peace. Peace gives us access to the grace. Grace gives us hope and the hope and the glory of God. This hope is not present tense in, in, in light of security, but eternal. It's on down the road. We still fail. If, if, if hope was what was right in front of us, we'd be hopeless. If we were relying on what we're 
we're facing right now, there would be no hope. It's just as Abraham, that promise that was made to Abraham is the same one made to us. We have that same hope. We sin. We always will sin. There's grace upon grace being poured out. And we have hope. This future hope. And the future hope is that we'll be fully conformed to the image of Christ. And I've shared this with you before. When, when you... People talk about when they, when they get to heaven, you know, they want, they want to meet this person or that person. Obviously, everybody wants to meet the Savior. What a glorious thing. I want that too, but I really want to know what it's like to be like him. I really want to know what it's like to be fully made like Christ, the perfect one. Romans eight twenty nine. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Very familiar. We rejoice in the fact that we'll be glorified. We'll be made like him. Our salvation is secure in the past through, through Christ, our peace with God. Our salvation is secure presently through Christ's continual intercession on our behalf. I paid for that and that and that. It's a wonder he has time to do anything else. Continual intercession on our behalf. Currently standing in, in, in grace until death. Continually under grace. Declared innocent. Upon death we'll, we'll secure the promise that we will be fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We will be glorified as he is. We will share in that glory. Incapable of sin. Some translations here read, boast in the hope of glory of God, the hope of the glory of God. Whether it's rejoice or boast, and, and sometimes it's translated glory in the glory of God, it means to have no fear for the future. If you have fear for the future and you claim to be a Christian, I would say repent. We have this divine hope, and our ultimate destiny is to share. This glory, it's not temporary, it's for all eternity. Same hope that Abraham had, a future hope based on the promise. Abraham, I'm going to do this. It's interesting that when, when God approached Abraham, he says, I have made you the father of many. Have is in past tense, and Abraham had no kids yet. It was as good as done, much like Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He wasn't slain before the foundation of the world, but it was as good as done. Our Redeemer, the plan of salvation from all eternity. Future glory also is not earned. 
received. It's received from a gracious Father. We're being glorified by the work of the Holy Spirit of our sanctification now, slowly being conformed to the image of Christ. Eventually, fully, as I've said. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of security, Ephesians tells us. The Holy Spirit is the first installment of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a constant reminder of the future glory to come. The Holy Spirit is a seal that cannot be broken. Our future glory is secure. And it goes on to say, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance. And Paul was no stranger to... uh, Tribulations in Second Corinthians eleven twenty two to the end. Paul says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleep, sleeplessness often, I hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And am I not weak? Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. If I must boast, I will boast in these things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under Eretus, the king, regarding the city of the, the Damascenes and the garrison that desired to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Paul might have known a thing or two about a thing or two when it comes to persecution. And what did he say? He counted all joy for the sake of the gospel. In James 1, two to four, he says, My brother, and count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the test- testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In first Peter. Chapter 4, verses 12 to 14 here, says, Beloved, do not think it a strange thing concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. 
If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, he is blasphemed. On your part, he is glorified. So these people are persecuting you, blaspheming God, and he is glorified through it. On your part. In John 15, very familiar. 18 to 21, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. This is... Christ warning the disciples of persecution to come. It's, not, it's nothing strange, as Peter tells us. Paul tells Timothy that those to, who desire to live godly will be persecuted. MacArthur noted this, that persecution for Christ's sake in this life is in itself is an earnest or guarantee of future glory. This is, is a down payment for future glory. Suffering is part of it. Part of your down payment. Persecution is evidence of living a Christ-like life. If, if you look at what Jesus said in, in, in his, his uh, what he had told his disciples, you know, that, that uh, persecution is coming and it's a sign that you're not of the world. That's cause for rejoicing, knowing that that this persecution that's coming upon you is because you are a Christian. Rejoice in that. It's not fun. Nobody likes to be persecuted. Nobody's like, you know, I'd like for somebody to just punch me in the face because I said I'm a Christian. That'd be great. No, nobody, nobody wants that. Nobody particularly would want that, I don't think. But it's not fun when it happens. But then you can look back and you can see where God had led you through that. Right, I I don't really think it's necessarily a persecution because I'm a Christian, but I, I mean, you guys know my story with work. Like I had, it, it was hard for me to when I moved to here from Virginia, I was an outsider, and I just everybody treated me like an outsider, and I eventually lost my job in 2008, and then um, I, I had people that that I worked for that were just not fun to work for, and. Um, eventually to where you guys know where I'm at now. And it wasn't fun going through it, right? But I could see the hand of God bringing me through that, right? I could see where he was leading me. I could see where he led me to this church. I could tell you the whole story of that. But persecution is, is a good thing. It's, it's kind of like the old saying, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Persecution makes you stronger. Persecution is evidence that you are a child of God. And no amount of, of persecution compares to the eternal glory that is promised to us. None. What's the worst they can do? Kill you? Okay, you're in glory. You're glorified. You, know, you, you, you can see Christ. You know what it's like to be like Christ. And you get to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man. To glorify God and enjoy him forever.
rejoice for two reasons. One is evidence that we're children, and it makes us stronger. In these trials that we go through, it does one of two things. It either will drive you to the cross, or it will make you angry. The right response is to run to the cross. Anger only harms you. So it's, it's healthy. It's like exercise for the soul. It's healthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. We learn how to better handle various situations. If I've gone through the same situation 50 times, and the first time it was horrible, by the 50th time I'm probably used to it and know what to do by then, right? It's the same thing. God is glorified in, in our perseverance. And this perseverance builds character and character hope. Perseverance here can be translated patience. It builds patience. First Thessalonians 3.3 3 tells us that no one should be shaken for these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. We are appointed to suffer. It's, it's what's coming. And this proof is that you're a Christian again. And this term here, character, is dakime. It means proof, as I said, but it's, it's also used for, for people that work with metal, um, as in purifying metal. And when you, when you purify metal, you heat it up, and then the dross goes to the top. You skim it off. And that's how it's purified. You get all the impurities out of it. It's like gold. You know, we think of pure gold, and then you've got all other levels of gold, 14 karat, whatever gold. So that's been, that gold has been purified. So it, it's the same with us, where God is removing spiritual impurities from, from us through, through trials, right? Um, another thing, you remember the fiery trial, as we mentioned in Peter, um, I, I was, when I was young, my dad had taught me that a knife, a good knife, will break before it ever bends. And the reason is you want a really hard blade because a hard blade will hold its edge. A soft blade won't hold an edge, right? So a really good knife won't bend. It'll break. It's the same with us. That, that fiery trial, it conditions us. It hardens us. It's like exercise. It hardens you. It makes you stronger. So that we have these, this hope in the promises of God and revealed in tribulations, this hope. Because no matter what, we still have that promise. We're, we're marching toward that promise continually. The more we pursue holiness, oftentimes the more we are persecuted. The more we are persecuted, the more hope increases because we really don't have anything else but that hope. Hope is a product of tribulation through perseverance. Hope is knowing that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's somewhere in the Bible, I think. 
Our hope is that we are Christ. And that we'll be, we'll be made completely like him. All the disciples were persecuted for the rest of their lives. All but John died horrible deaths. And some historians believe that John was boiled in hot oil. The equivalent of being deep fried. And he lived. Horrible. Deaths. Beheadings. Crucified upside down. 2015, remember the, the Coptic Christians that were beheaded? They could have saved themselves. Deny Christ. Beheaded. I couldn't remember the guy's name, so I really appreciate Google this morning. I found it in Jan Huss. Some of you might know this story. He died in 1415. I found this article. It says, on December 17, 1999, the Pope issued a ceremonial equivalent of a modern-day apology. This is 1999. Our bad. John Paul II addressed a crowd in the Czech Republic expressing a deep regret for the cruel death inflicted upon their hero. Deep regrets were the very least the Catholic Church had to offer. So lured to the Council of Constance under the promise of safety, Jan Hus was immediately thrown into prison for six months, given a mock trial, and ordered to recant, which he refused in July 1415. He was stripped, adorned with a dunce hat, painted with devils, and labeled arch-heretic, all as he prayed for his enemies. They led him past a burning pile of his books, chained, to him, chained him to the stake. In response for being chained up like a dog, he said, My Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this one for my sake. So why should I be ashamed of this rusty chain? They, hold him, they told him once more to recant, but he refused, proclaiming, What I taught with my lips... I will now seal with my blood, and that he did. As the flames climbed higher, he sang. The secretary of the council pronounced, O cursed Judas, because thou hast abandoned the pathways of peace, and thou hast counseled with the Jews, we take away from thee the cup of redemption. Thankfully, the Catholic Church did not have the authority to take the cup of redemption that day. very last thing he did was preach the gospel burning another version of that story was that he raised his hands Dietrich Bonhoeffer very good documentary on him you should watch it in the face of imprisonment and ultimately death by the order of Heinrich Himmler continued to preach the gospel in Nazi Germany. Why? Hope. He didn't care about this whole world. Jan Hus didn't care about this whole world. The disciples didn't care about this whole world. This whole world's temporary. 
And then Paul goes on to say, and I hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out on our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. Some translations read, hope does not put to shame. Why? Hope is the love of God. It's unwavering. How? It's been poured out in our hearts by who the Holy Spirit was given to us. And a side note here, this is the first time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Romans. The love of God, his love for us, not our love for him. His love for us was poured out on him. We love him because what? He first loved us. We've broken every law of a holy, righteous God, yet he still loved us. He loved us so much that in his perfect justice, he poured out his wrath on his own son, on our behalf. John 3.16, he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have it everlasting life if you look down here in the same chapter of Romans verse 8 says but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him we're saved from wrath through him because he took the wrath for us. His perfect love, the Father's perfect love, the same love that he has for his son that he punished for you, he has that same love for you. That same love for us. And this love's continually applied to our hearts. It's nonstop by the Holy Spirit that was given to us resulting in eternal security. Poured out, it says, as in immeasurable. It doesn't, doesn't count how much. It's immeasurable. It's continual. A fountain, if you will. And this Holy Spirit is further proof that he loves us, the Spirit of God that could never dwell in someone that he hated. It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit that we can rightly love God. You can't, you can't love God apart from the Spirit of God. It's only because of the Holy Spirit that we can rightly love people. I can't love my wife rightly if I didn't have the Holy Spirit. Non-Christians can't rightly love anyone. We're only able to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our security is not in the fact that we're holy. It's, it's the Spirit of God that makes us holy. We don't, we don't rest in our holiness. We rest in the holiness that he is producing in us, in which the Father only sees as holy. Again, in Ephesians, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit of promise is a guarantee of the inheritance. 
until redemption, remember? A seal that cannot be broken. Why? Because of the love of God. So we have this peace with God on the basis of faith. In the finished work of Christ, we have access to this grace by faith. We can boldly become before the throne of grace. Not as scared, feeble little children. Because we have a, a loving father. And we can boldly come into his presence. And say what we need to. We have joy and perseverance in tribulations because it's evidence and it makes us stronger. It purifies us. We have hope because of the love of God. Out of his hope we have peace, this access, this joy, endurance. As the, as the hymn goes, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Let's pray. Our merciful Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace, this grace that's poured out continually, this immeasurable grace. We thank you for the hope which is found in Christ. Lord, I pray that if anyone here does not know you, that today would be their birthday in the kingdom of heaven, that they may know this peace, this immeasurable grace, this joy, this love that can only be found in you. Lord, have your way with us this day. Let all that's been said here be applied to our hearts and let it be manifested in all that we say and do and above all let it bring glory and honor to you because we love you and it's in Christ's name we all pray and all the God's children said